host, Rhea Wong. Hey everyone, welcome once again to another edition of Nonprofit Lowdown. Before we get to our very exciting guest, I just want to do a couple of housekeeping details. Number one, just want to thank you all for being here. I know you could have been anywhere tonight, but you were here with me and I appreciate that. If you love the podcast, please rate it on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you listen because it helps with listenership. Share with a friend because everything's better when you share with a friend. And finally, let me know if there are any topics that you want me to cover because I am here for y'all. So I'm very easy. You can find me on interwebs, hit me up with an email, text me, unfortunately, always online. But I do want to hear from you. I love talking to people listening to the podcast and I want to know what you want to know about. So without further ado, I want to welcome my very dear friend, and I like to call her the Beyonce of fundraising, because like, look at that skin. Guadalupe Lupe Nickel is the Senior Director of Development and External Relations at the Graduate School of Education at UC Berkeley. Prior to that, she's had stints at KIPP and at Summer Search. Fun fact, Lupe and I actually went to the same very small high school in California, which is how we first got started, but our worlds have definitely collided. And Lupe is just someone I really admire and respect for her integrity and her grace in the profession. So welcome, Lupe. Oh, thank you, Ria. Oh my goodness. That's such a warm welcome. And I feel like even though we didn't overlap at Thatcher and I just, so, so you know, Oh, I, I, I you broke got the mug. My, my Thatcher School mug here with my coffee this morning. I have been such a fan of your work, and I feel like I'm always reading about you, and just was so glad that we were able to make this happen today. So thank you. Oh, no, thank you. It's such a pleasure. And you're calling from California, which is my hometown. Maybe we'll get back there one of these days. But enough about me. Tell me about you and your journey to being a career fundraiser, because I feel like a lot of people don't wake up one day and think, like, I'm going to be a fundraiser when I grow up. True. And I had a good old fashioned quarter life crisis. That's how I got into this work 20 years ago. So I was the first in my family to graduate from college. I did not have examples in my family of white collar professionals. And 2001 came along and I had been in the technology software space for a couple of years. I had to be financially independent. I needed work experience. I needed that paycheck. It was great experience. It didn't feed my soul. So when I got laid off with many in San Francisco in 2001, I sort of put on my big girl pants and said, I got to figure this out. So I started volunteering with an organization that I was a part of as an adolescent growing up in Oakland. And I loved that social impact work, but in my young self, I didn't know how to turn it into a career. Through that volunteerism, I met someone who would become a lifelong mentor to me. So he actually went to the same high school that Rhea and I went to, 40 years difference. And he said, what about nonprofit development? He was a philanthropist at this point. And I was like, what is that? And in the tech space, I was doing business development. I was doing a lot of client relations. I was doing project management. So I had that external orientation. And once I sort of figured out that this was a path and I had someone with the social capital and access to organizations to say, hey, this is not just another laid off .com or looking for anything. She really is looking for a meaningful career switch. I was able to get my first role, and that was in corporate giving at the Hispanic Scholarship Fund. 
and I was off to the races. A year into that, I realized, wow, I really like this work. I'm good at it. And the more I did research on development, I realized individual major gifts for me could be where it's at. And that just helped me chart out my next move. And there's been no turning back. And like I said, that was 20 years ago. That's awesome. So talk to me a little bit about fundraising, because I feel like it's such a polarizing topic. There are people like you and I who love it. I love fundraising. And there are probably more people who'd rather gouge their eyes out with rusty spoons and fundraise. So talk to me about how it is that you have found the joy and love in fundraising. I believe that philanthropy is a way for people to express their values. So when I think about myself as a conduit and a connector to connecting someone to making the kind of impact that they want to make in the world, that is really inspiring to me. And that is really energizing. I think one of the most important steps that we all have to take as development professionals is really, and frankly, probably as human beings, right, is is reassess our own relationship to money. For me, I grew up thinking that everyone who had money was probably a bad person and did something bad to get it and couldn't be trusted. Money brings problems. And to a certain extent, that might be true, but distancing yourself from that and realizing that these are resources that flow that make our world turn how can I move some of those resources to places that really need them, bring joy to the people who are making those gifts, those organizations that are making those gifts, and then make an impact in the issues that I really care about. Totally. I talk about all the time, the most revolutionary thing that we can do is to distribute resources where the work is happening. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. When you and I spoke previously, we were talking about the relationship between executive directors and development directors. I have always been an executive director who fundraises, and I'm wondering if you could talk about what is the essence of a productive relationship between an ED and a DOD? Because so often I hear EDs, and again, I have a lot of ED friends, but there's always a little bit like, yeah, it's okay. So in a few cases, it's like, it's amazing. But I'm wondering if you could walk us through, what is the essence of a productive relationship? I think that essence is trust. It's trust that you both share that same vision for the organization so that you both believe in where the strategic plan is taking it, where the board is helping you move the organization. It's lonely at the top. You know, I've been an interim CEO. You're looking around, you're like, who can I confide in? Where do I get my good information? The buck stops with me. I have to make tough decisions. So that trust, that C-suite is so important, but particularly between the ED and the head of development, someone once told me, and it resonated so deeply, I haven't forgotten it. As a chief development officer, you are the chief listening officer for the organization. Our job is to be really effective, active listeners. And what I have found across organizations, donors, board members, they will be more comfortable telling you, the head of development, critical feedback about the organization that they may not feel comfortable sharing with the CEO out of respect, which is totally understandable. But then you as the head of development need to figure out this donor didn't feel like they were stewarded well. They don't agree with our expansion plans. They think this X, Y, Z, A, B, C. How do you then take that really important feedback that you're hearing distill what's valuable and then relay that to your leadership in a way that your leadership doesn't get defensive. 
it's a real skill. So again, it, it comes down to that trust and understanding that you are two of the most important players on the team because you are probably both the leaders who are out there telling the story, connecting with supporters, and you, there needs to be that alignment and that trust. Where I see a lot of DOD and ED conflict is when there's a lack of understanding about responsibilities. And so what does that look like in your mind between an ED? Because obviously EDs do have to be involved in fundraising in some way. So are they leading it? Are they backing you up? Is a DOD leading it? I mean, I've seen a bunch of different configurations. I'm curious about what you think about that. Absolutely. There has to be clarity in roles, right? And that comes down to as something as simple as your job description, but also how you operationalize that and some really candid conversations. What I tell executive directors, I've coached development directors to have these kind of conversations with their EDs. Hopefully you can get to a point where your director of development is in charge of the development strategy. They are developing the plan. They know what the great opportunities are on the road ahead. They know the investments that need to happen in your staffing, in your systems. They know what needs to happen to get the board to be an effective partner. So, and the ED's got to run the organization, right? There's operations, there's programs, there's so much more. So I go into those conversations with the ED as, let me free up your bandwidth so that you can focus on other parts of the organization that really need you. I need you, but trust I'm not going to let you get out of bed for less than $10,000 a day. I'm going to tee you up for the most high impact opportunities. And just because you have to have it. the ED is critical. There are CEOs that are only going to want to talk to other CEOs. And sometimes you hear that, but then it's like taking the baby steps to actually make it happen. And then once the ED sees, like, I actually do have more bandwidth to focus on other parts of the, of the organization. And I can trust back to trust. I can trust that director of development is going to make sure I'm involved in every solicitation for our board members. They're going to make sure that I'm in front of the most important donors, but Maybe that you're freed up from having to talk to some of your mid and lower level donors that are frankly probably not the best use of your ED's time. So it's that trust, it's delegation, and it's really elevating the game for everyone. I love that. So something that EDs like to talk about, and again, I don't know if this is actually rooted in fact or if it's anecdotal, but it feels like it's really hard to find a good development director these days. And here in New York, I don't know what it's like out in the Bay, the lifespan is about 18 months. So I'm wondering if you can talk about why is it so hard to find a good development director and how do you know if a development director is worth their salt? That's a great question. And the social justice nonprofit warrior in me wants to say, it's not so much that there's a shortage, but it's actually the growth in the nonprofit sector, just in terms of the number of organizations that are being created and launched out there. But it's true, there's a talent issue. And I think your strong development leaders find a way to find good, strong organizations, and then they stay. And there's an incredible report that I really encourage everyone to read. It came out in 2013, the Walter and Evelyn Haas Fund sort of sponsored it with Compass Point, and it's called Underdeveloped, and it speaks to exactly this point. And it's a short report. It's like maybe five or 10 pages. I highly encourage you to read it, share it with your ED, share it with your board, but it addresses this exact issue of why is there a scarcity? Why is there this turnover? 
why do 40% of development directors say I'm going to be looking for a new job in the next 24 months? And what is so powerful about it is it shows it's not the development director, that role is not the issue. It's actually our organizations investing in the systems, in the staffing, and the capacity to make a development directors successful. So I do think it is a tight market for sure. It's that way here in the Bay. I'm talking to you guys from Oakland and Bay Area is my home here. But I also feel like development directors is a high pressure role. It is the pressure cooker of any organization. And if you have the resources and runway to be successful, that's more than half of the game. But we can't just look at one discrete point in the organization. You really have to look at the ecosystem around that role and are they set up for success success because too many organizations don't have a culture of capturing data. They haven't invested in those systems. Boards aren't helping out with fundraising. The ED thinks, I just hired a great development director. All right, I'm done. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. I totally agree with you. And I also think there's a bit of a paradox because funders also want to see that overhead really low. And they consider investment in departments like fundraising and admin to be overhead. So I think, do you agree that there has to be sort of a full scale reckoning with the funding community as to how we think about sustaining organizations over time? Absolutely. And I think we're starting to see some of that. I think philanthropy as a whole is reckoning with a lot of their grant making practices that in many ways uphold white supremacy culture. And this is actually one of them. It's wanting, it's preferring to invest in organizations that are look a certain way or are of a certain size or are already being funded by certain funders. And what inspires me and heartens me is that we're starting to see more organizations actually push back. So I have seen and heard of organizations saying in the pandemic, I know we have this grant report that's supposed to be due next week. We have all these issues happening with our staff internally. And can we push this deadline out? Even so, like, I feel like five years ago, that would be unheard of, of going to a funder and saying, you know what, I know this is your practice, but can we talk about this? I think those conversations are happening more. And I think there's also more conversation happening in the funding community amongst themselves that you actually really do need to support core operations. And when you look at venture capital firms investing in startups, Andreessen Horowitz isn't saying, here's 5 million, but please only spend it on marketing. They're saying, here you go. You trust in the leadership to deploy that capital effectively. So I do see more of a conversation happening. And I would just encourage those of us working to secure resources to really push that conversation forward. I'm going to switch tacks a little bit now to one of my favorite topics, which is being a fundraiser of color. So I just this morning posted an interview with my friend Marvin Vilma. He's a black man fundraising on behalf of MIT. We talked about that. We know that on top of the scarcity of good talent, there's also a scarcity of good talent of color. So I'm just wondering, as a woman of color, can you speak to some of the experiences that you've had as a fundraiser? Absolutely. I have probably experienced everything from the micro to the macro. I have been mistaken for a program participant instead of the chief development officer at at an event. There's always a lot of inappropriate questions. Yes, I'm a woman of color, but I'm also, I'm biracial. I'm half white. I, you know, 
I present in a way that is maybe more comfortable for some white people. I have an Anglo last name and a very Mexican first name. I've had some very challenging professional experiences where even the support that you think you might receive from other fellow leaders of color maybe is not there. You and I talked a little bit about the three as we were preparing for this conversation, but I'm sure many of us have read Edgar Villanueva's Decolonizing Wealth. And there's that part in the book where you're about halfway through and he says, yeah, remember in the earlier chapters when I was talking about that woman who came on board and was really supportive and actually it turned out to be a very, one of the most challenging chapters of his career and his manager was a woman of color. So I think it's very challenging, but at the same time, I feel so blessed to be in a role where I can move between all of these worlds and I can bring these resources to the community. And I can also advocate for other fundraisers of color. I wouldn't necessarily say there's a shortage, but there's a shortage also of opportunity because we all know people tend to hire people who look like themselves, who remind them of themselves. And you are looking for people with a certain kind of experience or background, but I really challenge us to think about shifting that in our mind. And I think there are a lot of very talented professionals of color out there that are interested in this kind of career, but they wisely want to make sure that they're entering a path where they see themselves reflected and they're going to be supported and they're not going to have to sacrifice their integrity or their values. I really, I appreciate that you named my integrity in the opening of this webinar, because for me, that is number one. And I have to be living in alignment with my values. Otherwise it doesn't work for me. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm reflecting a lot about my own experiences and my experiences tend to be less racially focused because I think as an Asian American, I'm sort of seen as sort of white adjacent, if you will. But at some point, I really would like to do a podcast about the Me Too movement and things that have been said to me in meetings with wealthy men and the ways in which we've had suck it up and like let it roll because we needed that check. Yeah. Like you said, it's a whole other webinar. It's a whole other topic. And I have to speak from the eye on this and I've had nothing too jarring happen directly to me, but I will say I've also seen female fundraisers in my field play that card and it maybe does get them a little bit further in that particular relationship with that donor or they're seen as sort of successful in that way. But I don't know, it's the East Oakland in me or something, but like the donors don't roll up on me like that. And that is certainly not how I present. And I don't mean to say that like it's on the woman to present in a certain way and, and she causes that reaction, but it's very real. And I have colleagues that are working in this space with nonprofit organizations to really re-examine their policies and their practices about how do they consciously or unconsciously support and condone this kind of behavior from donors and how they can really protect their development staff. And I think this is particularly acute for organizations where you have travel involved, overnight stays, you're taking people out to a wilderness preserve and there's your whitewater rafting and you have to wear a tankini. There are very real examples of situations where things can get very challenging. Yeah, we're going to have to have a whole other webinar about this. I'm sure we all have some stories. Okay, last question, because I know there are lots of folks who want to ask you questions, but what advice would you give to your younger self as you reflect on your 20-year career? Aside from take more 
PTO, take more vacation, because I would definitely tell my younger self that. What I tell fundraisers who are just getting started, get involved in organizations that you care about. Be a donor yourself. Understand how organizations communicate to you. Tap into that feeling of parting with your own hard-earned cash just to advance a mission and be a board member in your community just to gain that really well-rounded sense of how to be a donor, how to be a board member, how to be the communication that you receive from other organizations because it just rounds you out. I think it gives you a deeper empathy and appreciation for supporters and it enriches your work as a development professional very, very much. Love it. Love it. Okay. The floodgates are opening. Everyone wants a piece of this action. Gita, what is your question, my friend? Hi. I'm so glad to be here. I love your podcast. I am new to this world. So I'm 58, spent most of my time in restaurants. Four years ago, I started a nonprofit that deals with food literacy and food insecurity with our Title I schools. So really small, part-time, fundraised last year for grant to pay a small salary for myself. And our board is a working board. They're the most involved board that I've had, but nobody fundraises. Nobody gets involved. And well, let me take that back. They do involve some, but on a daily basis. So how do I get them to understand? And we're all in the same tax brackets and we don't have memberships or anything like that. We don't expect everybody to give monthly, but how do I help them to understand that it's everybody's job? Like I can't do it all myself, but I love what I do. And I appreciate all of your all's knowledge and skills and thank you all so much. Thanks, Gina. Common question. Lupe. Yeah, you know, great, great question, Gina. Congrats on fundraising some salary for yourself. And after a career in restaurants, you know high pressure and you also know dealing with a wide swath of personalities, I am sure. I think two thoughts come to mind in hearing you describe your board. One a strategy that I have found to be effective in trying to get them to make that sort of baby step because some folks I don't have people that I can ask. I'm not comfortable asking. I don't like to ask for money. Can you get them to sign up for helping you do stewardship? Would they be willing to place calls just to say thank you? What they can do that you cannot do as a paid staffer is tell their own story, tell their story of why they're involved, why it's important. And that story not to discredit you, Gina, but sometimes it means more than hearing it from you because they're not paid. So that's a great sort of baby step into getting your board involved in fundraising. Just help me make some thank you calls, give them some stationery and have them write thank you notes. People love getting actual real mail these days more than ever because we're all zoomed out of our minds. And I think it doesn't have to be very complicated, but again, job descriptions are really helpful. People need clarity. It doesn't have to be longer than a page. It could be half a page, but if you don't have those right now, ask your board to help you create them, list them in co-creating their responsibilities so that they can sort of own them from the outset. Thank you so much. And Gina, I have one more thing to add, which is I have a template for board letter that they have board members sign at the beginning of every year lays out the responsibility. So email me afterwards and I'd be happy to send that to you. Thank you. Thank you. Question coming in from Chijo. Hi, Chijo. 
Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. I have a question to hopefully get some advice that I can relay on to my client. We help nonprofits clarify their story on their websites. And I get the question because I work with a lot of clients who are small, local nonprofits. So there's an ED, there's no DOD, but they're wanting to get to the next level. Oh my God, there's too much on my plate. And I don't have a really good answer for them right now. And I want to, so I can give them something useful. One gold nugget thing could I tell her? I think in that situation, from what I've seen, is like you have to figure out creative ways to add some capacity. And you also have to clarify for that ED, what are the most important, highest impact activities that she should be focused on. So is there a board member who has a little bit more time who can take on some things? I don't, depending on the mission, is there room in the budget for an intern, right? It, what's, what pains me is when you have an executive director who is making an executive director salary and they're stuffing envelopes. That's the most expensive envelope stuffer that you could possibly pay for. So really trying to break out what are some of those activities that could be parsed out and creatively addressed somewhere else, you know, part-time help. Again, if there's a working board and someone who's willing to roll up their sleeves, that could be a great sort of free resource. But I think for a lot of EDs, that is a very common kind of sticking point. It's like, how do you get out of that one woman shop mentality and break out into being able to have even more impact? And I just don't see any way around it other than creatively creating additional capacity. I would also say too, what I've noticed sometimes in those situations, EDs tend to focus on everything else because they don't like or understand fundraising. And so they fill their time up with all the things that they know how to do. Like they know how to do programming. They know how to stuff envelopes. But, you know, in my mind, ED should be spending at least 65% of their time fundraising at a minimum. So, you know, a little tough love there. Oh, no, that's facts right there. Question coming in from Anise. Anise? Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I am a young, aspiring fundraiser looking to break into the fundraising field and industry. And I'm also a Black woman. And I wanted to know, like, what advice you would give young person of color trying to break into this industry? I'm very nervous. I don't know what to really expect. I do try to go to talks like this to hear other people's experiences. But I'm very nervous. So any advice that you can give me, I would appreciate. Well, I think you need to really lean into what is making you nervous and try to really identify that. But I think whenever you're trying to get from one place to another in life, it's helpful to look at someone who's already made that path and identify what parts of their game plan can I emulate and trying to find your tribe and those people. So I think you're absolutely the right path participating in incredible forums like these with folks participating from all over the country, getting involved in local organizations that you care about. And those organizations, there's going to be someone who's involved in securing the resources to make that organization work. So just really trying to put yourself out there and connect with those organizations and those people that are moving in the way that you want to move. And only you know what values are most important to you and the mission and the causes that are important to you and 
try to seek out those people who you admire and maybe you don't even know them. Maybe you're following them on social media, you're following them on Twitter, but that can be a great source of inspiration and clarity in terms of how you make that roadmap for yourself. It is a juicy one coming in from Leslie. My question is how should schools and nonprofits pivot traditional fundraising during the pandemic and afterwards? So what do you mean by traditional fundraising? I think that has probably a different meaning based on your context and what's sort of traditional for your organization. I guess basic methods as far as reaching out to people that have been done over time. Now it's difficult to reach out to people besides emails, I guess, and through mail. So I guess any advice on new um, practices we can use? So we're talking about this a lot, UC Berkeley, and we actually just had a meeting yesterday with the entire campus advancement community because we're in the middle of a multi-billion dollar campaign. And we're all sort of grappling with what does it look like to try to get donor meetings? How are we connecting with people? And I love it because in some ways I've always, I'm old school, so I've always used these ways, but the handwritten note is really powerful. I've referenced that earlier. Also picking up the phone, people are home. They are actually able to welcome the break from being in front of a screen. But I also think, you know, more than ever, don't let the pandemic scare you away from asking for money or building those relationships. Some of us on this call may remember fundraising during the Great Recession of 2009, 2010. I was in major gifts at the Nature Conservancy at that time. And what was really just drilled into us, and it was so true, and I think it is true as ever, is that in these moments of economic volatility, tremendous social unrest that we didn't see 10 years ago, relationships matter. People want to know that they still matter to you as an organization, even if they can't afford to give now or they're giving a little bit less, and it's more important than ever to communicate the impact, how are you as an organization pivoting your mission during the pandemic? I mean, depending on the mission of your nonprofit, your services may be needed even more. Schools are going through it for sure, and there's plenty of need there. But I would just say the last piece of advice is just have some empathy and compassion for your supporters because we all know that we're all carrying so much right now, personally, professionally, and people have a lot on their plates and just try, you know, multimodal outreach, right? Don't give up because you just don't know where somebody is at and you can't take it personally. Like we say in development, you have to pleasantly persist and just keep at it. But nurturing those relationships during the downtimes will yield benefits when things are back up. Great point. And it speaks to one of my pet peeves as well, which is I think we overly depend on email and social media. But at the end of the day, picking up the phone is important. Absolutely. Or when we can, meeting face-to-face, but who knows when that's going to be. Okay, so Kiara actually had to jump, but this is a pretty juicy question that I think we should answer. How do you feel about white, especially women, being nonprofit gatekeepers? How are we thinking about questioning the foundations of white supremacy in philanthropy right now? Because I think what we referenced earlier is there is a reckoning coming. And we also know that a lot of the gatekeepers to the money do tend to be white. And in some cases, women, in other cases, men. But I think it's predicated on white supremacist assumptions and culture. So we're talking about gatekeepers from a funding perspective. 
Much of my career and my work is focused around educational access for under-resourced communities. So I bring the lens of really trying to work in black and brown communities. And I think if you have a white leader who is serving as a gatekeeper, either at the organizational level or at the funding level, you can kind of get to it pretty quickly by looking at the effectiveness of their work. Because at the end of the day, you can't be doing work in these communities from a white supremacy lens and be successful. At the end of the day, your kids aren't going to show up for programming. Your community partners are not going to want to partner with you. Like, I really do think it's not a nice add-on or a, a moral imperative. It's actually, are you getting the results that you want at your organization? So I don't know if I'm answering her question in the way that she intended it, but I think there's, there is a part of it of just like, are you leveraging all of the assets of the community and are you getting the results that you want? And if you're not, how might white supremacy norms be impacting your ability to deliver? And if they are, then let's talk about the systemic ways that your organization is set up to promote that. And what would it take to peel that back and build something better in its place? I think as leaders, we have a responsibility and commitment to really examine our own wokeness or lack thereof as we leave forward, particularly if we're doing so on behalf of Brown and Black communities. Jama, question coming in from you. Yeah, my question is around the role of fundraisers in a nonprofit being identified as, in part as a part of that white supremacist under community. And so we sort of serve this role as a bridge between the funder community, which may in, in many cases be dominated by white funders, not exclusively, and colleagues who are more apt to be black and brown. So I guess my question is what recommendations might you have to support a healthy identity in that space? I think there's a theme here of trust and integrity, I think, in, in the conversation that we've had here this morning. And I think as long as you are authentic to your colleagues and truly sharing in the vision of where you want to take the organization and you are representing the organization in an authentic way to your funders, that's a really important part. I think also it's worth saying again, like your colleagues and the organization, even if they're not in development, fundraising is everybody's job. So it's not just oh, it's JAMA's job to go out and do that. No, you're delivering on the program. You're making sure we're hitting our mission milestones. And that's really important because then I get to communicate that back to the funder and get more resources so that you can do your job. And I think demystifying what, you know, I think sometimes our program colleagues have this really different idea about how it is that we spend our time and the way we talk to people and to the extent that you can bring some of those colleagues on donor calls and demystify it and engage them in the process could be a great growth opportunity for them and enrich your donor interactions, you know, very, very much. And also something that I've done in previous organizations is just back when we could all be in the office together and in a conference room having lunch, but just like a lunch and learn, like let's grab lunch and what questions do you have about development at our organization and questions do you have about the work that I do? Or I just think breaking down those walls, building that trust and also making sure that you're moving with integrity as you move across both worlds in your organization. 
Actually, as a follow-up question to that, Lupe, something you said at the beginning of our call was that you came into fundraising with this assumption that like rich people had done something bad or they were somehow different in some ways. I found in my own organization, I often had to balance the tension between younger staff who generally were on program and didn't really understand fundraising and my board who are generally older, white, and moneyed. So I guess my question to you is, how do you help bring people along in their own relationship to money and the ways in which money is necessary to fund the work? And specifically, how am I bringing my colleagues along? Yeah. I think it's important, again, for everyone to understand that those financial resources are what allow us to get our work done and get paid. I mean, not to be so crass, but at the end of the day, it's like, hey, do you like coming here to do this work and have this impact in the community? This is part of what makes this machine work. And I've always strived to build really collaborative relationships with my colleagues, I think. And then also seeing a number of situations where we've hosted a small event and donors came and the donor maybe said something or behaved in a certain way that really was not you know, aligned with our values. And the program staff were like, hey, this was said, this happened. And even listening to that, acknowledging it, and then being willing to bring that back to the donor and have a constructive conversation, that was super powerful in my experience because the program staff were like, wow, you're even willing to hear what we had to say and have a difficult conversation with the donor. I think that's why this work is so hard, but it's so important because it's filled with those challenging conversations that we just, we have to have as people and as a country. Oh, that is so real. Have you ever turned down a gift on the basis of integrity? I have said we should not approach this funder. Mm -hmm. I have said, well, how would we feel if our families that we serve saw on the front page of the New York Times that we had accepted a gift from this funder? That's the way we have to look at it. I have certainly swam in those waters, but it hasn't been so far down the path that there was a gift on the table. And how have you determined that framework? I know we've talked with folks about you should have a conversation and sort of a framework ahead of time with your board and your leadership about what money you will and won't take. And again, I talk about this a lot, but on some level, like all money is dirty money. Like on some level, you can reach back generations and it's built on some basis of exploitation. So how do you thread the needle between money that you will and money that you won't take? That's a great question. And you're absolutely right. At a certain point, mature organizations should have gift acceptance policies, ethics committees. If you are a child health organization, you will not be taking money from Altria, Philip Morris, Anheuser-Busch, et cetera. Some of that stuff is really clear cut. But this is where I feel like it is imperative to involve your board in helping you make these decisions because, and this will get, this will snap them into action because the minute you do take money that comes up on the New York Times the next day, guess whose reputation is going to be on the line? Not just the organization, but the board, because the watchdogs are going to say, where was the board on this? So your board as fiduciary agents, their reputations are also on the line. So you want to kind of bring them in and say, let's have these conversations in advance or as these gift opportunities come up and together let's make a decision that we can all stand by because it will certainly affect us all. Yeah. And I think it's an iterative process. Like there's no one 
right answer or wrong answer. It's a constant conversation. So as we wrap up, Lupe, I'm just wondering, are there any last thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with? I mean, we've covered so much ground and you've been so kind and generous in your perspectives and your storytelling. So I'm just wondering, what would you like to leave our audience with? I would like to leave the audience with a story or a reflection from the last five to 10 years of my career. And I was having a challenging working relationship with a senior leader at an organization who was in a position of influential power. And this is why our tribe is so important. And I remember talking to one of my girlfriends about the situation and she's Latina like me and she heard me out, you know, it's this rich white guy and he's my, like, wherever my performance was, it was just like, we couldn't connect. And she was like, can I ask what race is this person? And I was like, oh no, it's a white man. And just the way that she asked that question made me realize that I will no longer let my sense of self and value and worth be determined by someone other than me, <laughs> least of all a white man. I've been in this game for 20 years. I have a track record. I know I know my stuff. And if this isn't working, I'm not looking for external validation of my work. And I'm certainly not going to let somebody aside from me determine my own sort of self-worth. And that was just the way she asked that question really opened my eyes. And I'm so grateful for her friendship and her support. And again, I think as we all move through this world, having those supports in your life are so important because they can check you and they can remind you and they can hold space for you. That was a moment for me. Oh, that's such a beautiful note to end on. Lupe, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom. Thank you, everyone. Lupe, thank you so much. Take care. Stay safe in the Bay. Thank you.